Okay, so as everyone's grabbing a seat, we'll get started. I never get coffee on Sunday morning. I got two cups today. <laughs> two, two, two different people brought me cups. It was all that, all that amount of uh, Jonathan helping David in the text, maybe. So, um, oh, we don't need that. Uh, real quick, before we begin, one thing I want to draw your attention to, I meant to say last week, is that there are wonderful resources for studying Reformed worship. Uh, It's been something I've enjoyed studying over the years. In my library, I probably have over 20 different books on Reformed worship, books that show all the ancient liturgies, books that show how the Reformers used the ancient liturgies, uh, books that trace every bit, every aspect of the worship service, uh, not only through redemptive history, but also through church history, and show the rises of different... Uh, deviant practices. Uh, so a lot of them are specialized and are very narrowly focused on a particular issue, but uh, people have asked me if I wanted to study a little more about Reformed worship, what book would you recommend? Um, the, two book, the two main books I would recommend, uh, both authored by friends of mine, is one is uh, Daryl Hart. You might remember Dr. Hart. He's been here a couple times to teach in the past. Uh, he was one of my professors at, at seminary. He wrote a wonderful book with John Meather, uh, another good teacher, called With Reverence and Awe, Re- Returning to the Basics of Reformed Worship. These are actually adult Sunday school classes that have been collected and put into one book. Very simple, easy to read, will, will help you very much in terms of the categories and the distinctions uh, that we understand about worship. So highly recommend it if you want to uh, know why we do what we do in worship. And then probably my all-time favorite, um, written by our our dear Michael Horton, a book called A Better Way, Rediscovering the Drama of God-Centered Worship. And this is just an amazing work. I'd I'd recommend reading that one first and then moving on to this one. This one's a little more advanced, but not too advanced. He he goes through uh, more of um, how worship is a covenant renewal ceremony and how that unfolds throughout uh, redemptive history. One more, another one by a, a colleague of mine, John Payne, um, a PCA pastor on the East Coast. Uh, he wrote a little book called In the Splendor of Holiness, Rediscovering the Beauty of Reformed Worship for the 21st Century. I think both of these guys endorse this little book. And this is just a tiny book on liturgy. It walks us through the... Um, the order of worship, which is basically what we're doing in the class. So those are three great resources for the layman, and highly recommend them if you want to know more. Uh, this is an issue. It's nice to take a, a subject and study it for a while. Maybe say, over this year, I'm going to study you know, the doctrine of justification, or I'm going to study um, you know, the doctrine of worship, or, or something. You know, take something and make it a practice as we are, of study, as you are uh, maturing and persevering in the faith. I mean, think about that. If you did that every year, you know, after 20, 30 years of being a Christian, as some of us have been, uh, you would have a lot. Not just of, it's not just head knowledge to walk around with uh, uselessly, but things that you can know and draw upon to contribute in your service to the church. Uh, okay, so picking up where we left off last week, talking about liturgy. Every church has a liturgy. There's no such thing as a liturgical church. I hear that all the time. Um, and liturgy is, simply means order of worship. And so whether you are in a charismatic church or 
an, an Eastern Orthodox church or a Reformed church, you have a liturgy, an order of worship. The question is, what kind of order of worship do you have? Uh, what is in that order of worship? And what regulates that order of worship? Um, spoke, as we spoke about last week and next week, uh, we'll talk about in more detail as we look at what Calvin had to say about worship and his reforms. For the Reformation, worship was a primary issue. Uh, Calvin listed it even above the, uh, the doctrine of justification in terms of need of reforming in the church. Uh, many people don't know that. Uh, many people today think that you can mix Reformed theology with charismatic worship. And in fact, the two are incompatible because uh, our worship is only an expression of our theology. And so, uh, uh, you know, having, having reformed theology with charismatic worship is really schizophrenic. And uh, what we need is uh, a regulative principle of worship, which is not um, what I like or what I prefer or what I find acceptable, but rather what God finds acceptable. And so in Hebrews chapter 12, after the writer to the Hebrews has uh, made his case for uh, these new covenant believers who were Jewish and were tempted to go back to Judaism because they were being persecuted, he says that Christ is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. He says, look, you haven't come to Mount Sinai, you've come to Mount Zion, and explains to them the benefits of their position in Christ. And he says, therefore... Let us worship, let's offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is the same God who killed Nadab and Abihu, a consuming fire. He's not mean and holy God in the, in the Old Testament and nice and whatever God in the New Testament. He's the same God, and he is holy, and we are to worship him in a, a tone of reverence. And uh, that's something that we should talk about, you know, that tone of reverence as we consider, you know, the different parts of the worship service and why we're doing what we're doing. It's important for us to remember what the New Testament has to say about offering God acceptable worship with reverence and all. What does that word reverence mean? It means a fear of the Lord and recognizing that what we do is holy activity. And that should really govern Many of the decisions that we make personally about what we choose to wear to worship, uh, when we decide to show up, um, how much we're going to get up and move around during the service, uh, whether we should eat or bring our Starbucks in. I mean, is it, are we going to the ball game? Are we going to the theater? Or are we going to worship the living and true God? Now, I realize I'm stepping on a few toes, maybe. And if you know me, you know that that doesn't really bother me uh, because I'm appointed to say these things. And if somebody, if I don't say them to you, who will? And, you know, you could always say, well, I really, I've had enough of them and I'm going to go find someone who doesn't tell me these things. Well, look, I'm only here to tell you what God's word says. And you know it's true. And so, you know, that doesn't mean that, you know, shh, shh, don't say, don't breathe. We're worshiping. Uh, but it does mean that there should be a tone set. And we need to consider those things. For example, when we're having communion, 
or the law is being read, or the absolution is given, that's really not the time to go to the bathroom. Because we worship the God who killed Nadab and Abihu. We worship him with reverence and awe. And if we can't give 90 minutes in the morning and 60 minutes in the evening, then we really need someone to bring us along a little more. I mean, we really need to uh, consider more carefully what we're doing. And it's only once a week. Uh, So the, the tone that the New Testament tells us to adopt is not one of flippancy, but one of reverence. And I realize that in our culture that is increasingly becoming more casual in everything, um, that that is not really popular. And it's strange a bit. But we worship a God who, uh, until we came to Jesus Christ, was a stranger to us. The stranger made himself known to us. And so it's the one thing we do that is quite different than everything else uh, in the week. And so, things for us to think about. We, we, we come to worship, to offer him worship with reverence, acceptable worship, worship that he finds acceptable, and it's his word, his word that dictates that, what he finds acceptable. Yes, we also come to receive from him. Yes, it is God serving us in some ways, but that's not all that happens. And if we only focus on that, we get out of balance. There's a two-way street here. God speaks to us in word and sacrament. And we speak to him in prayer and song. And we see this in really the only passage that shows how the new covenant church operated. uh, Acts 2.42 which after 3,000 or so are, you know, uh, well, many are baptized, about 3,000, many are baptized and their children are baptized and uh, they come into the church and uh, they continued steadfastly in apostolic doctrine, that would be preaching and teaching, in the fellowship, okay, that is not just idle chit-chat over steaming coffee, but also the confession of the faith together. That's where our fellowship really lies, Uh in the breaking of bread, definite article, the breaking of bread, it's in the original Greek, which means the sacraments, and the prayers. And so prayers include song and confession. And so there's this dialogue that goes on that's vertical. So yes, God is serving us just as Jesus served his disciples when he laid aside his garments and washed their feet, and he is bathing us or washing us again as we come to be washed with the word, to be uh, renewed in our, our covenant with him, to be refreshed, to have our strength, our, our faith strengthened. Uh, but that's not the only thing that's happening. We're not only on the receiving end, we are also offering, according to Hebrews 12. We, Hebrews 13, we are making the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips to God, who deserves it. He deserves our very best. He deserves our best. This is the most important thing we do all week. It's far more important even than our jobs tomorrow. I know we, we, hold, we hold our jobs uh, with very high priority, as we should. That's our vocation in the world, right? But even if your job is the President of the United States, or you're a heart surgeon, 
or whatever, whatever you are, it pales in comparison, that activity, to worshiping the holy God in the plain and ordinary local church where the gospel is preached. This is the most important activity we do all week long. It doesn't look that important. It doesn't look that glamorous. But, again, neither did Jesus before the world. And God has a way of uh, doing that, you know, making his kingdom in the world doesn't look so glamorous and bright, and yet this is what's happening. So there's this dialogue that happens. Now, as we talked about before, uh, there's also a secondary effect as we are singing, and as uh, Jonathan had pointed out in his class rightly, as we are singing, we are, you know, we are singing the word into our hearts as well, and we are teaching and admonishing one another, okay, a la uh, uh, Colossians 3, or 2, 3, um, the, letting the word of God dwell richly in our hearts, uh, and uh, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. But that's only a secondary effect, that, that horizontal effect, the primary effect is singing it, singing to the Lord and blessing his name as he is, he is pleased in it. He is pleased when we come together and we make a joyful noise, which was why well, I was a little ornery this morning about saying amen. It's a joyful noise. It's biblical. It's scriptural. I'm not binding anyone's conscience. The, the Psalms are filled with commands to say amen. And Ambrose's, uh, the church where Ambrose pastored uh, in Milan, uh, it was known for you could hear it's what sounded like a thunderclap when the, the congregation would say amen and then when they would sing. The Lord is pleased with that. He loves that when his people gather together and sing to him. I mean, just like we as kids love when people sing happy birthday to us, right? Uh, well, the Lord loves it even more when people all over the globe in all these different languages are singing praises to him and making a joyful noise. We need to think about that. You're not doing it for your pastor. You're doing it for the Lord. And if we say, yeah, but I don't have a very good voice. Well, we know. We hear you. I heard a rabbit one time get hit out in, right here in Mass Boulevard. It was the worst thing in the world. It sounded like a little child. Maybe we feel like we sound that way. But the Lord is pleased. The Lord is pleased. And so you let it fly. You sing. And if you say, you know, man, the singing just isn't so good back here or in this church. That may be true, but I'd also ask, where do you sit? Because when I'm on a vacation and I come to worship and I sit in the back, you can barely hear anything. Now, this isn't to pick on anybody who sits in the back, but um, maybe if we had our better voices in the back, <laughs> and you moved up, but you hear more in the front. I'm just helping you with, uh, you know, uh, with the aesthetics. But overall, the reason we do it is to please the Lord. There's a dialogue. He says, make a joyful noise to me. Sing to me. And then he speaks to us in word and sacrament. And then everything we do in this, okay, continuing steadfastly in apostolic doctrine, the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and the prayers is reflected in our liturgy. And so as we've been going through the liturgy, uh, what, what are the things that we've, we've been hitting? The liturgy, the worship service, it officially begins with the call to worship. Yes, we have a few announcements ahead of time because that's congregational life, and one could argue that that is part of the fellowship. Um, but it begins with the call to worship. 
And so that is God speaking. Okay, God is speaking to us. Calls us to worship with his word. And there are so many passages that speak of that call. So Psalm 95, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. Again, those are images of reverence. Kneeling before the Lord. Bowing down before the Lord. And so uh, when we, we should think about these things as we come to worship, that uh, I have an appointment with God to, to be there when he meets with me, when I meet with him on his terms, because he's made me and he's redeemed me. And so it should become a priority then, even preparing for that call to worship. And I know sometimes it, you know, it, it can, I, it's happened to me when I've uh, um, worship, worship with us when someone else is leading worship, um, if I'm not paying attention, I can sometimes miss the call to worship. I'm sure that's happened to most of us at some point. It's good, though, when the minister says, let's quiet our hearts now to just pause, maybe even close your eyes and hear the word, because that's God speaking. That is God speaking. It is not an empty ritual that we do. It is not Mike Brown's church. You don't go to Mike Brown's church. You go to Christ's church. And as I said before, there's only one member in Mike Brown's church, Mike Brown, and it's a cult. And you don't want to go there. You don't go to any pastor's church. You go to Christ's church where he is appointed a pastor. And so that's God, not the pastor, calling you to worship. That's what we need to think about. And we need to teach our children that. Then what do we do? As, he, as God calls us to worship, he makes his... Uh, his invitation to us, his demand of us, then we invoke his name. So there's an invocation. And that's us. Oops. So you can see this is God speaking to us, us speaking to God. And uh, just like all the invocations that we find in Scripture, in the Old Testament and the New, the people of the Lord say, be our help, O God. Our help now. We need to hear from you. We, we need your grace we need your resources so that we will persevere and not fall away. And then what does God do? He greets his people. There's that salutation or his greeting. Just like we find in the apostles' epistles. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. Dad, why does the pastor say that? Son, because that's what Paul says in Galatians 1. Dad, why does, why does the pastor say uh, the seven spirits are before your throne? There's not seven spirits. Son, because that's what God says to us through the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. Here it is, right here. Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. We need to know these things. As I said last week, if we don't know them, if we don't know them, our kids won't know them, and our kids don't know them, it'll drift away. That's how it happens when you study church history. It always happens that way. At some point, there is a break in knowing why we do what we do. And if it just gets passed on as, well, this is a practice, there'll be a generation that rises up and says, I don't even know why we do this. I just think it's boring. Because it is kind of boring. A lot of things that are good and great are boring, but are still necessary. You know, the earth turning isn't exactly exciting. Uh, not every sunset and sunrise is, wow, radical experience. 
Uh, it's just kind of what happens 365 days a year, year after year. But it's necessary, it's important, and so is worship. But if we don't know why we're doing what we're doing in worship, or we don't explain it to our kids, they're going to end up in the wrong place for sure, or believing the wrong things. And this happens every single time with every denomination. It's like a ship that hits an, a, 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 an iceberg at some point, and a bunch of people are going down on it like the Titanic, dressed in their you know, tuxedos, and then you have other people who are jumping out in lifeboats and then forming another boat, and then that becomes a boat, and then it goes on for 100 years or so, and then it hits an iceberg. I mean, anybody who's studied church history knows this is the case. There's no denomination. It's just continued faithfully forever. And the URC and the OPC and the PCA will all tank eventually. But it'll always be because at some point the elders didn't pass on to the congregation and the parents didn't pass on to their children why we do what we do, why we confess what we do. And so even little things like this are important, guys. Those, well, how come we never heard about it? You're hearing about it now. This is, this is vital, vital stuff. And this isn't the time to be cruising into church either. I understand everybody's going to get to church late once in a while. It happens. But think about it. You have an appointment with God. Do you want to hear God extend to you his promise of grace and mercy from his word? Oh, I hear that every week. It's no big deal. But you have an appointment with God. So it's important for us to think about these things. So there's God's greeting. Then what do we follow that up? With a song. God loves it when we sing. So we sing a lot of psalms. Uh, Those are his ordained songs. We can never improve on the psalms. Uh, We sing a lot of biblical hymns, as Jonathan was explaining to us uh, in his excellent class, where the the text is good, uh, and as well as the tune, and it's basically canonical material, uh, exalting Christ. We sing to the Lord. We sing to him. Uh, Now, right here, let's take a little detour real quick. And Let's talk about music. Instrumentation. Is music one of the necessary elements of worship? Is music part of Acts 242? No. Okay, we're done. We can move on. So... (laughs) Well, yeah, that's a good point. Not singing. Okay, well, technically true. Technically. Technically true. But that's not typically what most think about. Instrumentation. Our instrument, yeah, our instruments uh, is instrumentation. And, you, I mean, we can even argue tune as well, which is the music. I and mean, we, we could argue tune. Is that part of the, the element of worship? Are tunes and instruments necessary for worship. Well, one could argue you've got to have some kind of tune. True, but can the tune change from culture to culture from time to time? Can the instruments change? Well, what are they? If they're not elements of worship, which, by the way, we don't find in the New Testament, except when Paul or John has visions of glory, but we don't find instruments described as they are in the Psalms, 
where David says, you know, make a joyful noise, the Lord, with the lyre, with the tambourine, with the cymbal. And, uh, you know, a lot of um, so-called worship leaders will say, well, see, there it is, drums and Fender Strats, right? We should use guitars, and, but here's the thing with that. Those were part of temple worship. The Psalms also speak about making sacrifices to the Lord, offering bowls and offering, uh, you know. So, in principle, if you're going to say that we can have stringed instruments and, and tambourines because the Psalms speak of them, then you can also have blood sacrifices. Now, one might say, yeah, but we see blood sacrifices in the New Testament uh, abolished because Jesus has uh, fulfilled that, but he's also fulfilled all of the temple practices. He's fulfilled the whole theocracy. And we don't find them in the New Testament. So that's really not the argument to make for instruments, the Psalms argument. It just falters. It falls, if you think about it for five minutes. The better argument for using them is that we need help. That it's really what we call a circumstance. And the elements, and this is where um, Daryl Hart's book is really helpful. The elements are really the what we must do in Scripture, or in Scripture, in uh, worship that are defined in Scripture. Uh, the circumstances are the sort of the when and the how. For example, where does the Bible say that we must worship at 9.30 a.m. on Sunday? Nowhere. It doesn't. Uh, it says that you know, they met on the first day of the week, and uh, we've understood that. The apostolic practice, as well as the practice of the early church, to mean the first day of the week, the birthday of the new creation. But as to what time we should meet, um, that is a circumstance, whether it's 9.30 or um, 12 o'clock. What time did they meet in Geneva? Some of you know the answer to this question because you've had classes with me before. They, they would meet on Sunday morning at the same time that everybody went to work every day of the week for most of the history of the world when the sun came up because they didn't have electricity. I'm always amused when I hear people who read the Puritans for the first time saying, oh, and he was on his knees every morning before daybreak. And I say, well, I got news for you. Everybody got up before daybreak back then. There was nothing particularly pious about that. Uh, you just, that's when you got up, was when the sun came up and you went to bed when the sun went down. Um, you were like the chickens, basically. And so the, the, the circumstances are the when and the how. So in Geneva, they, they would go to church like we do, First service, which everybody had to be at, at one of the churches, St. Pierre's or otherwise, um, early in the morning, like 6 o'clock. So should we meet at 6 a.m.? Right? You're like, you crazy? And uh, so the time is a circumstance. And it's really on a continuum of wisdom, of what we might call less wise or more wise. And these things can change, as circumstances do, from uh, time and place. So, uh, we have decided, now who's the we? Who gets to say where this tick mark is? Do we all come together as a congregation and say, well, what do you like? Well, what do you like? Well, what do you like? 
like the, the 99% of people that uh, do the sit-ins? Should we do it that way? That's how a lot of people want to do church. Who makes that decision? The elders do. Those guys to whom we must submit. And we might not always agree with their decision. I've never been particularly fond of 930, and I've pastored this church for almost 12 years. I think it's Sunday, it's a holiday. Man, move that sucker up to like 11 o'clock. Let's sleep in and, you know, just cruise, right? But, um, but I submit. And uh, so, you know, we have to make a decision on what's more wise, what's less wise. We do this with everything. What about the minister's dress? Well, he's got to wear something, obviously. So what should he wear? Should he wear a Hawaiian shirt? That seems to be what a lot of evangelical pastors did through the 80s and 90s. Um, should he? No, well, now, now it's you've got to be my age and wear ripped jeans and a shirt that's like three sizes too small for you and show off your tattoo. And uh, that's really connecting, you know, with the culture, that. Um, not the word of God so much, but the looking like you're a teenager. Um, should you look that way? I mean, that's what a lot of successful... You guys, if you think I'm being snarky, you know, it's because you've sobered up in the world of a Reformed church. This is what's out there. This is what's out there. I'm not being snarky. That's what's out there. That's considered normal today for evangelical churches. Or maybe a more conservative one where he, you know, wears a suit. So then, you know, he looks like a, I don't know, businessman or insurance salesman. So what should he wear? Again, it's, that's a circumstantial matter. It's not a matter of, of, of uh, an element. The same with regard to music. As we understand, as I understand instrumentation, it's not an element of Scripture. You don't need it. It's not an element of worship. It's simply there to help us stay in tune, and it shouldn't have center place at all. Um, if we ever build a, a building, I'm going to push really hard on the consistory, I mean, I'm only one voice, but I've always said uh, I'll push really hard to have the piano in the back where you can't see it because it shouldn't be up front like it's some kind of performance. It's only there for one reason and one reason only, to accompany the singing of God's people. That's it. Now, by principle, if we say a piano is okay, then in principle we can say any instrument is okay. Guitar, harmonica, kazoo. Uh, then it comes up to wisdom again. Kazoo, maybe not. Right? Uh, guitar. Well, I like the guitar. Well, here's the thing. So T. David Gordon wrote a really great book called Why Johnny Can't Sing Hymns, and he explains in there that the hymnody that we have inherited as a tradition doesn't really mesh well with a guitar. And that to write the kind of hymns, as Jonathan was uh, explaining in his class, that have the rich text to them, uh, typically is, I mean, you, it, it can be done, but typically it's not going to be done very, it's difficult. Uh, the kind of music that fits better with a guitar is usually going to be more of a chorus. And so for hymnody, a piano lends itself just better to the kind of songs that we sing. And so there's this issue of wisdom that goes on constantly, whether we're talking about instrumentation, whether we're talking about ministerial dress, whether we're talking about architecture. In architecture, for churches, there's a reason why this doesn't look like a theater. There's a reason why it's flat 
and doesn't have the... Because we're all one in Christ. We're brought at one level. Whether we're rich or poor, whether we, uh, whatever uh, race we are, we are one in Jesus Christ. There are not better places and less better places. Um, maybe colder places if you're sitting under the vent or hotter places in some cases. Uh, but there's a reason why our forebears did that. There's a reason why the pulpit is high and lifted up and it's big and thick like this. And it's not, you know, nowadays if you get on the uh, church furniture websites, do you know what the most popular pulpits are? They look like this, but they're smaller and they're clear. Do you know why we have preferred big, oaky, heavy-looking stuff? Because it looks like it's immovable. The Word of God is immovable. It's not light and ethereal and Gnostic-looking. It's heavy and earthy with roots. You can't move it. Actually, this one can move. That's why this one is dented right here. The pastor who was here in the OPC for years before, uh, he got a little large later in life, and he was preaching one time, this true story, and the whole thing toppled over, and it hit the, um, this is why this has a dent right here, and he went. So I always make sure, you know, when I'm up there, it's. So, but that's the reason. There's a reason for these things. We don't do things without reason. We don't just do things. That's stupid. I'll say it into the microphone again. That's stupid to just do things without thinking about it. There's a reason why we do things. And we don't try to, and this is what so many churches are today, they look like a rock concert or a movie set. They got a big stage, and then they put props up there, and then they have purple lighting, and, you know, we don't, it's not a nightclub. And historically, we have had big, heavy furniture, pulpit up high, because we are all under the word of God, Ministers should ascend into the pulpit. I actually, when we did this, asked that we could raise it up higher, but um, that thing is up so high that when we, we tested it, it looked like I was on the cross. And so <laughs> we, which is reason number 1007 for removing it, but that's a side issue. Uh, the, but so we had to go lower, and it was up this high until Dr. Godfrey came and almost killed himself, uh, if you remember so we lowered it, realizing that many in our circle are getting older. And so here's where we're at. But this is called a chancel, historically, not a stage. You don't have a stage in church. And my study is a study, not an office. It's a study. And this is a chancel. And this is a pulpit. And there's thought put into each one of these things. And it's small, so that you can't have a choir up front so that you can't have a play, so that you can't have those things, because those things, they have no play. Those kinds of things in those ways have no place in worship. You have a couple of chairs here just so that some guy can sit. They're not, they're not the best seats like the Pharisees wanted, okay? Some have asked, that, no, it's just some place so the minister can sit before he gets ready, and then it helps if he has somebody else uh, too, so that if somebody else is leading worship, uh, they're just there for practical purposes. Why is the ceiling uh, arched like that with a point? Why is it high? Because it gives a feeling of transcendence. It's just circumstantial. You could meet in a barn. You don't have to have a pulpit. You don't have to have these things. But if you're going to have them, you do it with some thought. Why is the table lower than the, than the word? Because you can't have the sacraments without having the word. 
So there's thought put into all of these things. And these are all what we call circumstances. Okay. So in the liturgy, uh, these, these things we just want to remember are part of the circumstance. We could also con- consider tune. You know, a Genevan tune w- was appreciated in the 16th century. Today, if you can sing a Genevan tune, you are, you are a gifted individual. Uh, they are very difficult to sing. And so we can find, you know, circumstantial change even in the tune. Okay, so song of praise. What, we, what follows that typically? Reading of the law. And is that God speaking to us or us speaking to God? God, right. He's saying to his covenant people whom he has assembled, this is how I want you to live. And then we confess our sins. God to us or us to God? Right. And then he announces his pardon which is God. Only God can do that. Uh, What about when we confess the faith? Us to God or God to us? Oh, I can hear people thinking. That's us. It's a prayer. It's us saying to to the God who has revealed himself in his word, yes, we believe your word. And obviously it would take a long service to confess the entire Bible, but we confess a summary of that uh, in in the creeds. Uh, what about what comes after the confession of faith, pastoral prayer, that's obvious. What about the offering? That's us to God, us saying that, yes, we, we are giving of ourselves in this particular way, as you command, uh, and it's all over the New Testament. Um, and it's also, again, part of the fellowship, Acts 2.42. This, too, is part of the fellowship, the confession of faith, the offering. We're participating together in that. When we take, when we take a benevolence fund offering in the evening services, that's a huge part of Christian fellowship. And then there's the prayer of illumination, which is asking God. Well, then we sing again. There's a song. And then prayer of illumination, uh, which is us asking God to illumine our minds. And then there's the reading. I'm out of room here. And the sermon. Which one is the Word of God? What does the Second Helvetic Confession say? One of, the, one, of the most, one of the most important confessions of the Protestant Reformation. What does the Westminster Confession say? Especially the preaching. And then what does the Second Helvetic say? It says, the preached Word is the Word of God. It's not, well, I heard God speak, and now I'm going to hear Mike speak. Now, that doesn't mean that a sermon can be without error, but rather, this is the chosen means for God to speak to his people. It's through the preached word. So Paul says at the end of Romans, in Romans 16, he says, now in him who is able to strengthen you through my gospel, only an apostle can say that, and through the preaching of Jesus Christ. God strengthens us and builds our faith, not only through the reading, but through the preaching. That's why great care has to be taken into that preaching. You know, that's why uh, in our circles, before a man 
is set apart and ordained to go and do that, uh, he has to show himself uh, approved. You need to go and learn the original languages. You need to get a whole education and then be tested for a long period of time um, because that we consider this to be very important. We don't just let anybody into the pulpit. Yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. This is the kingdom of God. And uh, that's, that's only uh, those whom in God's kingdom have been set apart for that work do that. So God speaks then to us in the preaching, in the sermon, and then also in the sacrament, the Lord's Supper. That's God speaking to us. That's not something we are doing for God. Rather, it's something God is doing for us. And same in baptism. And then in the benediction. It's amazing to me that, you know, there are churches like, much like the one I grew up in where there never was a benediction or a reading of the law or a saying of the confession or praying the Lord's Prayer. When you find those things in every, pretty much every tradition of Christianity in liturgies going all the way back to the earliest liturgies we have, people like Irenaeus and Justin Martyr and Cyprian, um, and yet, in today's non-denominational evangelical world, uh, it's sometimes hard to find a church that even has a reading of the law, a confession of sins, a, a confession of faith by one of the creeds, um, and a benediction, Lord's Prayer, and let alone a sermon where Christ is central. The person and work of Christ is central. And that is indeed what we seek to do here. All right, I'm, I'm over, so I'm going to stop there. Uh, next week, we'll talk about, just we'll go jump right into uh, Calvin's treatise on reforming the church. Um, if you have questions, I'm happy to stick around for a little while and, uh, and talk. I know this is something that always provokes questions. And in fact, if you want, maybe we could just do a Q&A next week. And then if we have time, we can talk about Calvin. Um, it's up to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for... Your word, we thank you for the opportunity to worship you, the true and living God. Thank you, Father, for um, instructing us from your word about how and why we do this. And may we do it well and to your glory, we pray. And may we find it a delight and a joy, O Lord, as you serve us and meet our deepest needs in Jesus Christ through the means that you have promised to bless. And may you be glorified and blessed and exalted as we offer to you acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For we offer to you through Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.